I'm happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Dr. Cal Rostiala. Mr. Rostiala is a professor at the UCLA School of Law and the UCLA International Institute. He is also director of the UCLA Ronald W. Burkle Center for International Relations, fostering interdisciplinary research and policy-oriented teaching on the U.S. role in the world. Mr. Rostiala's upcoming book, Does the Constitution Follow the Flag, examines the extraterritorial reach of American law and is set to be released next month. Please welcome Mr. Cal Rostiala. Thank you very much, Gregory. I just want to take a moment to thank uh, the staff of Zocalo uh, for helping us put this together. This is a great uh, event. I'm very excited about it. I know all of you are. And I'm very glad to be working uh, with uh, the Zocalo team. So I'm going to very briefly introduce our special guest. I know everyone wants to, uh, wants to see and hear from her. Uh, and I know many of you know a lot about her. But let me just give a little bit of background. So um, Dr. Wangari Mathai is trained as a biologist. Uh, and she's the founder of the Greenbelt Movement. In 2002, she was elected to the Parliament of Kenya. Uh, and in 2003, was appointed Assistant Minister for Environment, Natural Resources, and Wildlife. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004. Uh, and is the author of uh, two books, one that was just mentioned uh, by Gregory, It's Outside for Sale, The Challenge for Africa. I've just read it, and I, I highly recommend it. And also a memoir called Unbowed. And of course, she speaks widely uh, around the world, and is, uh, luck we are lucky to have her touring through the West Coast. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Wangari Mathai. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're very kind. Now, we, before we get started, I know that you like to have some warm or even hot water around. Is it possible <laughs> to, to have some brought up? That would be great. Thank you. So uh, I want to just start us off. I want to talk about your book, and I want to talk about Africa and Africa's place in the world, uh, and also what uh, the relationship with the US and Africa ought to be. Um, but before we get to that, I just want to ask you a little bit about your background, and if you could say a few words to the audience about uh, how you got to be here, um, about the Greenbelt Movement, what brought you uh, to your, your love of the environment, your, your interest in, in trees and wildlife, and all of the things that have sort of made you uh, who you are today. So if you could say just a few words about that. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thank you very, very much. I want to thank the organizers uh, who brought us here uh, in Los Angeles again, and we are very, very happy to be here at the campus. Uh, and um, I know that those of you who have seen the film Taking Root uh, or have read the book Unbowed know um, somehow how we came here, but in a nutshell, uh, this story actually begins in 1973-1974. Uh, at that time, there was a movement in the world uh, because the women wanted a UN conference about them, and they convinced the United Nations that there should be a conference on women in Mexico in 1975. And women were being mobilized all over the world. And in Kenya, like everywhere else, we were organizing. And we came together under the auspices of the National Council of Women of Kenya. And 
it was during those discussions on what the issues would be when we go to Mexico that I listened to the women mostly from the countryside and I realized that they were talking about issues that uh, were not a problem when I was growing up. Issues of clean drinking water, issues of uh, food, nutritious food, adequate food, issues of firewood, um, and issues of income. Uh, when I was growing up, there was bush everywhere. There were trees everywhere. Water was plenty. Rivers were flowing and they were clean. I used to fetch water from the river for my mother and we didn't even have to boil it. We drank it like that. It was so clean. But these women, we are talking about the lack of these very essential uh, services in our life. And I realized that the environment was changing. And so I told them, maybe we could plant trees. And in the beginning, they, they were not very enthusiastic. They thought they could not do it because uh, we had come to, traditionally, we did not plant trees. God did. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then, uh, to a very large extent, rivers flew and forests were okay because the population was very, very low and there was no commercial agriculture. And so there was plenty of land. And I used to collect firewood for my mother everywhere. There was no problem. So I realized that development that we, has, we had adopted uh, was good development, yes, but it was also undermining the environment. And I think part of my understanding was due to the fact that uh, I studied biology. I ended up coming here in the United States of America, in Atchison, Kansas. Uh, and, um, and, and so going back home and looking and listening to these women as, as then uh, a lecturer at the University of Nairobi, it was easier for me than many other people, I guess, to see the linkages between what the women were talking about and what was happening to the environment. Mm -hmm. And I quickly realized that what the women were talking about were symptoms of an environmental degradation. And I wanted to now go to the causes. And really, it is in search of the causes that eventually led me to where I went. And what made you decide to go into government? So once you, you began your work and were, you, as you said, trained as a biologist working, what made you think that government was the right place for you? Well, that took a long time um, because uh, once we started planting trees, as, as, as you know from the, the two sources, the book and the film, um, under normal circumstances, nobody would have been bothered by a bunch of women planting trees. That's nothing, really. Uh, but there was something else we were doing that eventually put us in conflict with the mm -hmm. government. And that was, as I said, we were looking for the causes. What was causing the environmental degradation? Why were the rivers not flowing as they used to? Why was there soil erosion? Why did women not have firewood? What was happening to our forests? Who was cutting the forests? And eventually, of course, we came to the understanding that, as, as we all know, the commons, the rivers, the mountains, uh, the parks, wildlife, all these commons we own 
as citizens, but they are managed by the government on our behalf. And if you have a government that does not manage these resources in a responsible way, then if you have a government that, for example, privatizes them or sells them or gives them to friends and clones and supporters, uh, then obviously the government is not playing the custodian role that it is supposed to play. And of course, at that point, it is the responsibility of citizens to question because you don't want to have a government that destroys the forests, for example, because you know if the forests are gone, maybe the rains will be gone, and if the rains disappear, you are likely to have your agriculture collapse, and you'll have a crop failure, and you'll have famine, or you'll have your rivers not flowing. And so it is, uh, we, we decided that we needed to educate citizens on why, why the government was managing the resources that way, why we manage ourselves the way we were managing ourselves. We, we in fact, we went back to the pre-colonial times and we tried to understand how different communities uh, governed themselves and how we governed ourselves during the colonial period and how we were governing ourselves now during the post-colonial period. So as, and, and the idea was to try to make citizens understand that they have a stake in their country. They have a stake in the way these resources are managed. And they have a responsibility to hold their, their leaders accountable. But they needed to, um, to understand that. And it took us a long time because we were dealing with a dictator. We were dealing with a government that wasn't doing any of these things. And very soon, the government began to see us as an anti-government movement. And we were harassed and, and um, arrested and uh, you know, treated like we were enemies of the government, when we, in fact, all we were trying to do is to bring out the need for the environment to be um, managed properly, but also to, um, to make not only the citizens, but also the leaders understand that they are custodians. They don't own these uh, resources, they are custodians. So eventually uh, we became almost a pro-democracy movement. We joined the pro-democracy movement and when we finally managed to get rid of that government and to bring in a new government, I had the privilege of being asked by the people, could I stand, and I stood, and they voted for me, and I found myself as a, a deputy minister. That's how I, uh, but that was a long time. We, we started this whole thing in 1975 during the, uh, the UN Conference on Women. And we did not have our government, the government we could say, we have now put in place a government we can say we put in place until 2002. So that's a long time. Yeah. Yes. Well, I want to come back to the environment because that's something uh, I know many of us are interested in, I'm personally interested in. But one of the things you just mentioned was the problem in talking about the government and this long time that it took to, to become an accountable government. Uh, that issue is, a, is an important theme in your new book. And it's something I want to ask you a little bit about. So, so one of the... Uh, one of the topics you address in the book 
is the problem of governance in Africa uh, and in Kenya and, and, and in many places around the world, but you're, fo you're focused on uh, very much on this issue of accountability. So I wondered if you could say a bit more about the problems of accountability. Why has it taken, in the case of Kenya, why did it take until 2002 to get a responsive government in place? What were the barriers that you see, the primary barriers to that? Yeah, in fact, the book, uh, Challenge of Africa, is in many ways my reflections on how here I was, a young Kenyan, I get the opportunity to go to school, I even get the opportunity to go abroad, I study in America, I come back, and I'm a committed citizen, I want to do good for my country, I am teaching in the University of Nairobi, but I'm also interested in women's movement. I'm trying to ensure that women's positions in the university uh, is just and fair. And therefore, I joined the National Council of Women of Kenya. I engage with the women in the rural areas. I want to uh, help the environment and for the people to understand the value of the environment and how the environment sustains them. Uh, and I engage with the, these rural women and I teach them how to plant trees and I even go looking for money so that for every tree that survives they can be compensated so that planting trees for them can become an income <coughs> generating activity and we try to uh, make the government become responsible. We, we urge that human rights must be respected, women rights must be respected. And I am doing all this in the strong belief that I'm a good citizen, that I'm giving my best with enthusiasm and a commitment. And what do I get from my government? <laughs> I get jailed, I get harassed, I get beaten, I lose my jobs, and I become almost a person non grata in my own country. That becomes for me food for thought. <laughs> because I want to know, so what is needed? What do we want to do? Yet we are a, a country that for a long time water was under the colonial administration. My people fought for freedom. They died in the forest. They died in jail, they died in uh, what we, we would call concentration camps, fighting to get rid of uh, uh, colonialism, and we finally win, we become free, and now you have a government of our own people, and they are t treating their, the people worse than the colonial administration to the extent that the people can say, maybe we were better at the colonialism. And, uh, and for me, it's, it's, um, it's a big challenge. And I, 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 I identify, identify myself uh, with those who are in power because I am highly privileged. I, I am part of that elite. At that particular time, I was even in the government. And I begin to really question uh, the mode of development uh, because I begin to ask myself, what is, what is happening? In fact, the book is um, an expansion 
of a paper I wrote uh, in Beijing in 1995. You remember in 1975, women met in Mexico. Mm -hmm. In 1985, we met in Nairobi as, as the first decade added. And, and women in Nairobi said, we need another decade. So we declared another decade, 1985, 1995, and we went to Beijing. And in Beijing, I was asked to talk about the Green Belt Movement and the experience, and people were fascinated by it, especially because it was started as a result of that preparation for Mexico. But I said, I don't want to talk about the Green Belt Movement. I have talked about it for so long. I want to talk about bottleneck, bottlenecks of development in Africa. What are the bottlenecks? At that time, this is 1995, I described corruption. I described bad governance, violations of um, human rights, the debts issue. And, and I'm told, among other things, and I'm told you cannot present this paper in the United Nations in Beijing because I'm part of the delegation to go to Beijing and I'm told if you are going to present this paper, you cannot join the delegation. And I say, get me out of the delegation because I'm <laughs> presenting this paper. You, you mean the Kenyan delegation? Yeah, the Kenyan delegation. delegation. So sure enough, <laughs> I, I, I get out of the delegation and I go as a member of a completely different delegation, <laughs> which... <laughs> which was led by Bera Absug. Some of you may remember Bera Absug. <laughs> and, um, and so I go and present this paper. And, uh, and in order for me to, <laughs> to be a little safe, because I'm presenting it in the United Nations, I put the logo of the United Nations, and I said, this paper was presented at the United Nations Conference on Women in Beijing, blah, 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 blah. And so with the love of the United Nations, I was able to cut it, and nobody dared confiscate my paper. <laughs> <laughs> and I presented it, and it aroused a lot of interest because I was talking about issues that were almost uh, anathema to mention. The one was not supposed to talk about these issues. And I really felt, why can't we talk about issues that we see every day, that we know are affecting the lives of people negatively? How can we not talk about them? So that eventually, of course, now uh, it has come as this book. And I, instead of calling it Bottleneck, I decided to call it The Challenge for Africa. <laughs> More uplifting. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so let me, uh, you mentioned the colonial legacy, and that's a, a, an important theme in the book as well. So um, do you, one of the things that was very, um, very interesting for me to read was the excitement. You talked about the time of, of independence and, and how uh, throughout Africa, a wave of, uh, the independence movements came very uh, quickly, independence came very quickly, and, and there was great excitement, and then, as you described, great disappointment as uh, the, the new governments prove themselves to be either inept or corrupt or in various ways not responsive to the ways you described. Um, do you, can you say something more about how uh, decolonization took place and whether, if you could go back in time, would you do something differently? So you, you mentioned that you thought the Kenyan government was, the initial Kenyan government was worse than the British had been um, would you have the British have stayed longer? Would you have the handoff on power be different? Would, what would you do differently about that, if you could control it? 
Yeah, I think I think first and foremost, the truth of the matter is, I would have. Um, first of all, it's very important to understand that in Africa, unlike in places like in India, for example, where there were very highly educated people uh, like uh, like Gandhi, like Mahatma, um, who were lawyers and who actually understood what was being proposed. In Africa, to a very large extent, you were dealing with people who had, until then, not even known the concept of a nation, except the concept of their um, tribe, which in the book I refer to as a micronation. Those nations were not created by the Africans. They were created, as we know, by the European powers in Berlin uh, towards the end of the 19th century. So to this day, these states are extremely superficial states. That's why they collapse so easily, because there is not the ownership of these states. The communities or the tribes, as we uh, would call them, have a lot of uh, loyalty to the what they consider their nation. That's why I'm bringing in this concept of these are nations. It just happens that they are very small, so let me call them micro, but they are nations. And if you compare any one of these communities with another nation like France, uh, like, uh, I wouldn't say Britain, because Britain is a combination, it's a congregation of many tribes. <laughs> but when you look at a country, for example, like France, which is uh, generally mm -hmm. very united and, and uh, very proud of itself, you, you, you go to any, any of those, um, are there any French in the audience? <laughs> <laughs> if you go to any of those uh, communities that I'm referring to as uh, micro-nationalists, you'll find that they have the same parameters that make them proud mm -hmm. and, and have a sense of belonging and they have a sense of history they have a sense of uh, the past, they have a sense of heritage. And I think this is a concept that we in Africa have ignored, and I hope that this will help to generate discussion to actually uh, accept that we need a conscious effort to bring ourselves together and to agree between ourselves that we need this nation that was created in Berlin in, 1980, in 1885, because so far, it is only a small group of elites who play around with this nation, which we can call the macro nation. And, and so uh, for me, when the transfer of power, remember there were some people like uh, people in Kenya were fighting for independence. But apart from people in Kenya, in south of the Sahara, there were very few other groups that were um, deliberately fighting to become independent. And even them, they were being told they don't even know what they're asking for. And you know that the push to decolonize was partly pushed by the United Nations because it was the United Nations that formed the decolonization committee and charged the, the, the United mm -hmm. Nations with the responsibility of ensuring that the European powers abandon the colonies and 
my understanding is that even the United States of America told the European powers, we cannot help you to reconstruct after the war while you are still holding on to your colonies. Whatever the United States uh, had in mind, I do not know, but it helped, <laughs> it helped to push the agenda of decolonization. And many of these countries were not prepared by their mother countries in inverted commas. They were not prepared to take over the reins of power. Many of them had no education. Uh, many of them had no, no lawyers, no judges, uh, no teachers. There was no infrastructure to take over a state and manage it. But it was thrown onto them. And to a certain extent, it was thrown onto a very small group of elites who were prepared by the colonial power to literally, if I may use the English term, change guards, so that they would take over from the uh, administrators from the, from the mother country, mm -hmm. and they would literally fit into their shoes. And when they got in there, uh, many of them had no patriotic convictions. And even those who had, who might have had, like Kenyatta, for example, to this day, uh, people who study Kenyatta's question whether Kenyatta denied that he was Mau Mau so that he could be made president or prime minister, or whether he really denied that he was Mau Mau because he was not. Most Mau Maus will tell you he was a leader of the Mau Mau. He was jailed because he was a leader of Mau Mau. But later on, it was uh, it, uh, it it wa it worked out that it was a lie that he was not a Mau Mau, and sure enough, he denied them and he completely marginalized them out of the government. And these were the patriots; these were the people who had put their life online. Many of them had died trying to get rid of the colonial administration. They were marginalized to this day. They are not part of the government of Kenya. So the people who took over many of these uh, states were indeed stooges of the colonial administration. And that, to a certain extent, is why they have never been uh, completely committed to the welfare of the people. They have enjoyed the same kind of lifestyle, the same kind of privileges, sometimes, in fact, several times over, and they have continued to manage these states as if they are representing the crown <laughs> rather than their own people. Let me ask you about the micronations that you mentioned. So this is one of the one of the. And so to, to maybe to conclude there, to, to respond, my, your, I went a long way to answer your question. <laughs> How would I have prepared them? And I would have, I would have done what Chinese did hmm. when they were heading over Hong Kong, when the British were heading over Hong Kong after 100 years. The Chinese did not allow the British 
to prepare the Hong Kong Chinese who would take over Hong Kong. They took Hong Kong people, they took them to China, they educated them or indoctrinated them or whatever you want to think, but they made them understand that Hong Kong was part of China. And Hong Kong must be united with China. When there was a lot of pressure about the fact that China was a communist country and Hong Kong was a capitalist country, you remember China said, they have no problem having one state, two systems. That was a government that understood that you cannot tell a colonial administrator, uh, train for me the administrators of the colony after I have kicked you out. You can't do that. Because essentially what we prepare, we did, when we, di when we allowed the colonizers to do that, they actually left their own people there. They created laws and regulations that perpetuated these guards, but also made sure that the mother country continued to have a great influence in the management of the states and in the management and exploitation of the resources in the states. So if I was doing it again, I would probably have said, I don't know where that wisdom would have come from, to tell you the truth, because there was no experience like in Africa. Uh, Af Africans didn't have the kind of experience that China had in 1997. Uh, so maybe uh, Africa can say, well, we didn't know any better. But if you didn't know any better, this is 40 years later. It's about time you got to know. <laughs> so looking forward, your, your agenda in the book is very much about what Africa can do differently, what it ought to do differently, but also about what the world can do, the outside world. Uh, and one of the issues, one of the important relationships between countries like this one and, uh, and Africa is uh, tied up in the issue of debt. And you mentioned debt. Uh, one of the things you call for in the book is to um, repudiate many of the debts that have been accrued over many decades uh, and, and to, s to start fresh uh, with them. Uh, so, so why is debt such an issue? Uh, and what, what can, w uh, let me put it this way, one of the problems that's sometimes raised when this uh, kind of idea is put forward is that if those debts are repudiated, then future lending is very difficult to envision because people will say, well, why should we once again give money to a place that said before, well, this money is not owed back because that government was illegitimate. We're the new government. We are legitimate. Please lend to us. Uh, so do you think that uh, that's a problem? Do you think that the debt burden is just so large that it has to be pushed aside? Um, how can we really deal with this gigantic debt issue that, that as you say, is is strangling Africa. Yeah. Well, in um, towards the year 2000, many of you may be involved, may have been were involved in the campaign that we carried out throughout the world to urge G8 countries to cancel the debts of poor countries. And and some of the reasons why we were saying that these debts should be cancelled is because the principle that was given to these countries had been paid several times over. 
and we were asking how many times, if you read me $10 and I pay you $50, how much more do you want from me <laughs> before you can feel that I have paid you $10 back? The truth of the matter is, the way these debts were restructured, Africa will never repay these debts. Generation after generation, mm -hmm. the first generation was Kenyatta. We are still paying the debts that Kenyatta borrowed. I am the, the daughter of Kenyatta. My children are still paying, and the, my, my grandchildren will pay. The issue of debt is that now, I think it is much easier now to explain to Americans and to the developed world. <laughs> because you have seen what banks will do <laughs> if they are not regulated. And, so, and you have seen how the United States government has spent billions of dollars to bail out banks. Now, why did the government do that? Because it did not want the repercussions of failed banks. Because the American people, the citizens, would suffer greatly because of the failure of the banks. So the government came to bail out banks to protect the American citizens from the pain that they would otherwise go through. Now, we could have told you a long time ago <laughs> that if you don't control banks, they can go, they can ask the principal and the interest, and they will keep compounding it until you can't pay. And in this country, what you have been doing is the bank will give you money, and if you say you don't have any money, they give you a card. And if the card is, is, uh, is uh, if, you, if you overdraw too much money from that card, they give you another card <laughs> until you literally leave from mouth, from mouth, from heart to mouth. In Africa, no, have you ever heard of any bailout in Africa? <laughs> And why didn't the banks, why didn't the World Bank, for example, decide that because the principal has been paid several times over, it is not fair, it is not just to keep asking these countries to pay back the money and allow children to die because children don't, because hospitals have collapsed. There are no drugs. The school, we can't pay school fees, so children don't go to school. There is no infrastructure. We collapsed a long time ago as states. So what we do is we come and we borrow, and we restructure, and whatever we do, we pay back. In fact, during that time, when we were campaigning, it became very clear that a lot of what we are told is aid. Because sometimes we are told, oh, you pay the debt. But it is aid. You are given aid. And we use that aid to pay the debt. 
So, so the aid became trade rather than assistance. And at that time, during that campaign, it became clear that for every dollar that was being sent to these poor countries as aid, it was coming back as four dollars. Now, when will those people ever develop? They are indebted for life. They are literally slaves. And governments in the developed world kept saying, oh, we can't, we can't make any changes because these are banks, these are independent. Well, why did the government here intervene? Because it was their citizens. So we were telling our governments, for goodness sake, if you can't pay, just tell them you can't pay, finished. <laughs> <laughs> because you have already paid the, the, the principal several times over. Your people are dying. You can't send your children to school. And you have to give, literally give whatever you have. If you have coffee, if you have coffee at that time especially, we would not be given an opportunity to add value to many of the goods we were selling so that we can pay those debts. So if we are growing coffee, you are told you remove the skin because it will rot if you don't. And once you have removed the skin of the coffee bean and you have dried the bean, you put it in the sack, you sell it to me as a bean. And I say how much money I'm going to pay for that bean. So I give you because I need money to pay your debts. <laughs> and you pay at the price you want. And then I come to the World Bank to borrow money because I couldn't make enough from my coffee, from my tea, from my cocoa. There is, that is why we were talking about fair trade and saying that what Africa really needs is not so much aid, which as we have seen is trade, but fair trade. And, uh, and until we, 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 we get to that, uh, we won't go very far. Now, the reason why our leaders were allowing themselves to be pushed so hard is as long as they were comfortable, as long as they were supported, sometimes by the very governments that were asking for, for these payments, they didn't care that their people were dying, that they're starving, that the children are not going to school. And then we see our people moving, like in uh, Northern Africa and, and south of the Sahara, those countries bordering the Sahara. You see people moving northwards to go looking for greener pastures. And people say, why are, you why are they leaving the continent? There is nothing there. People have collapsed because we don't have governments that protect us the way we saw governments in the developed world protect their own. They even had a big meeting in London. They even called people who are, no normally we hear of G8, we now heard of G20, <laughs> to come and work together for the global economy. We should have done this for Africa a long time ago. But we needed the African governments to say we can't pay, our people are dying, 
And then we needed governments on this side to be honest, to be fair, to be just, and not to ask for excessive profits. Well, I think as you just uh, made very clear, the issue of accountability is very important to you, and it's important to, to, the, to the arguments you make in your book. I know we're going to go to questions in a minute. I just want to ask you about two, um, two failures of accountability, two very uh, significant crises in Africa, and ask you what a country like this one should be doing. So one is Zimbabwe, and the other is Darfur. So if you had the ear of uh, Barack Obama, or Nancy Pelosi, what would you advise that they do, that this government do, about either of those two crises? Well, f first of all, I want to say that uh, we are happy that at least uh, in Zimbabwe, they finally were able to sit down after such a long time and agree to form a government and at least move forward. Uh, and I know that uh, there were many, many efforts to try to make uh, President Mugabe respond. But Mugabe is not alone. There are lots of Mugambes in Africa. <laughs> and, and, and generally, uh, what we need is for pressure to be, to be continued, to demand that there has to be responsible governance in Africa and to demand that that responsible governance is the only thing that will be assisted. I know that we have come a long way from the times of Idi Amin, uh, from the times of um, Bokasa of Central African Republic, uh, and other dictators that were really terrible. But we still have a lot of work to be done in Africa. A lot of us are very embarrassed when our African leaders uh, are either threatened or arrested and taken to um, the international uh, courts to be criminal tried, court. criminal court to be tried. And, um, and, and it, it is embarrassing because it shouldn't happen. But it is partly because the Africans themselves, both at the national level and at the African Union level, are failing to provide a justice system that protects citizens at the national level and at the regional level. I, I was in Sudan last year with uh, Jody Williams, uh, uh, fellow Nobel laureate, um, and, and others like Mia Fallow, and we visited Chad, uh, we visited the refugee camps. Uh, and it was very sad to see how our leaders are using communities to fight each other. We first went to southern Sudan, and we listened to the southern Sudan Sudanese, and we actually met some women from different parts of Sudan, and they were working to see how they can create peace. But what was clear to me is that the micronationalities in Sudan, as they are in many other countries, are part of the problem because they are not willing to work together for a common purpose of the country. So the leaders 
use them. And the Southern Sudanese, for example, said that when Darfurians, when the Southern Sudanese were fighting their war, it was the this, Darfur this people who were being uh, hired by the government to come and fight the Southern Sudanese in the name of religion, because these are Christians. And, and the people in Darfur were Muslims. They are Muslims, so they were coming to fight kafirs, as they call them. And so the Southern Sudanese people were very angry about the fact that their fellow black people in Darfur were the ones coming to kill them in the name of religion, or coming to kill them just because they were not Muslim. But now, when we were in Darfur, I remember asking the, the people at the camp, I said, why do you think that the northern communities who are Arab-like, Arab <coughs> why are they fighting you? And both of you are Muslims. You are not supposed to be fighting. And they told me, well, they don't understand the Quran. <laughs> well, I think that's a simplistic way of, uh, of, of the women who were in the camps and the men who were in the camps because I'm quite sure they understand the Quran. But they are using ethnic communities. And the main reason why the northern tribes are pushing the southern tribes is because of land. Because the Sahara Desert is pushing, pushing them hard, and they are now pushing down to push the farming communities in, uh, in, the, in Darfur. So mm -hmm. to a very large extent, we are dealing here we are with a, an issue of environmental refugee or mm -hmm. environmental degradation and people now fighting. But because they can't say we are fighting because of environment, they have to use we are fighting because uh, you people should move. And uh, unfortunately, the government supports uh, mm -hmm. the northern tribesmen. Uh, now, what should be done for the people of Darfur? And who should really be more concerned about the people of Darfur if it is not the president of Sudan? If the president of Sudan cannot protect the people of Darfur, who will? I can only say that until recently, there was no, no way, nowhere to turn. But fortunately, now that we have an international court, criminal court, at least people can go there and say, I'm in danger, and my own government is unable to protect me. So can you protect me? So I'm hoping that um, with the African Union, which, as you know, instead of really standing up with the people of Darfur, and standing up with the people who are suffering, they tend to protect each other. They tend to, they want to say, oh, this is an African head of state. You cannot drag the African head of state from here and take him to The Hague. We will try him here. Well, we don't have an ICC court in Africa. We haven't created one. And unless the, the, the African Union creates one, there is none. And so I think that um, the international community has a responsibility 
to protect citizens, to protect people wherever they are. And if the, recently we did pass in the United Nations, I'm saying we did, but it was the United Nations did pass a clause that said that every state has a responsibility to protect. So any state that fails to protect ought to be held to account. And the person who is in charge is the president. So I think it is extremely important for all leaders to, to appreciate that, or there should be an international, um, an international consensus that human rights are protected everywhere and that states cannot hide behind sovereignty to violate their citizens. They ha must be held to account. Great. <coughs> I couldn't agree more. And um, I know that the audience has many questions, and I want to give them a chance to jump in. So uh, although I have many more questions for you, I want to I let them weigh in. So uh, hands are up. We have two microphones. One microphone, two? Two. Yes. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, we're going to begin our Q&A portion tonight. Um, there's two of us going around, like Mr. Rostiala said, but we do want to remind you that this is being recorded for both video and audio podcasts, so all questions must be asked into the microphone, please. Um, if you could please state your name before your question. And also, at this time, our donation buckets will be going around, and we do appreciate any and all of your support. Questions? And please wait for us to come to you. Thank you. have a question to your right. And Wangari, Bob Smith, and my wife, Genevieve Marcus, we met you in Rio in 92, and we danced and rubbed your back. <laughs> <laughs> Our question is, do you think that the United States and the world court can help your country and the countries of Africa to become more humanistic, not democratic, because that doesn't seem to work too well? And it, we talked about that before, and I think you probably have some wisdom now about what you would like to do to see Africa become the United Nation of Africa. Uh, what I would say is that uh, I know that the, the African Union has that dream, and there are a lot of people who have that dream in Africa. And uh, as you know, the president of, Liberia, of uh, Libya President Gaddafi is currently the chairman of the African Union, and as soon as he became the chairman, that's one of the issues that he said he is going to work on. But my, my position is that for us, it would be a great thing because Africa needs to be united. Africa is, is rich, but she continues to be uh, exploited because she's, she's vulnerable because she doesn't have the capacity to defend herself, to defend her resources. She doesn't have enough knowledge and skills and technology to be able to add value to her resources, so she tends to give them away uh, as raw materials. The only way she can do that is if she unites, if she stops investing so much in trivial wars between warlords. And a lot of the wars that we have in Africa are really between warlords. Um, so that we can invest in education instead of investing in guns, which we don't make, we go to buy. 
from people who are very happy to sell us guns and kill ourselves. Um, but what I would uh, s say is that, especially now, I think that um, President, President Obama uh, has excited people all over the world and in Africa, both the leaders and the ordinary citizens are very excited about the presidency of President Obama. But my uh, position has been that, of course, there will be a lot of opportunities created by his presidency because, as he has said himself, he's bringing about change. But those who will benefit from the new uh, policy or the new position or the new attitude of the American people and government will be the people who are ready for it. Uh, I am quite sure that he will want to see corruption added because he doesn't want to hear that or he wouldn't want to engage in a government which when assisted money goes into his pocket or into the pockets of his family or into the pockets of his supporters and cronies. Nobody will do that, and I, I, I have said many times that I'm quite sure that the president will be very sympathetic with Africa in particular, uh, but he's not going to be Santa Claus <laughs> to Africa. We have to create an environment in which we can, um, we can take advantage of the opportunities that I'm sure would be made available. Uh, and as long as we do that, then I am quite sure that uh, Africa would benefit from the new presidency. We have a question to your left over here, front. Hi, I'm Kathleen Sheldon. I first want to just say thank you for everything you've done for all these decades. I wanted to bring African women back into the discussion here because they seem to have been a little bit marginalized. <laughs> and um, so often in America, they're just shown, we're just shown um, women in misery, women as victims in Africa. And I wanted you to talk maybe about a couple of projects or initiatives that you think are really important that either Kenyan women or in other African countries are involved in now that Americans should know about. Thank you. Yeah. Well, the Green Dot Movement has, um, has an approach uh, and we use trees as an entry point to communities. And once we get into communities, we address both men and women. So for me, actually, sometimes I do forget to differentiate whether I'm talking about women or I'm talking about men or I'm talking about children because I tended to see communities rather than uh, sections of communities. And as for, a, for a person who has been working in the rural areas, working with ordinary folks, uh, to try to improve their env immediate environment and their quality of life, I can tell you that every poor woman is most likely married to a very poor man. <laughs> so you, if you are dealing with the poverty, you are dealing with the poverty that is at attacking everybody. And in a country where you hear that more than 60% of the people are earning less than a dollar a day is both men and women. And it is easy for us to say the women and the children are the largest victims. But even when men go, when their husbands or their sons run away from the land or run away from a situation 
that is very bad for the family and they go into the urban centers to look for jobs. Many of you know, those of you who have come to Africa, to Kenya, they live in slums. They are not having a good life. They are having a very miserable life. So I think that for us, sometimes I feel like we really need to work for the entire community, raise the entire community before we can even begin to say, are women all right? Are men all right? Are children all right? Everybody is in trouble, the way I see it. Okay, we have a follow-up question to your right. But in our, in, our, in our Green Belt movement, we work with the women, mostly because the women are the ones who work on the land in our part of, the, of Africa. It's the women who work on the land. So it's much easier to work with the women on the land, to plant the trees, to take care of the trees, to, um, to nurture those trees. And as, as you know, for every tree that survives, women get to be compensated. And we know that a lot of that money eventually goes to meet household needs. We know that money is not wasted. We cannot say the same for the money that men make. But we know that men, money that women make is mostly invested in household needs. I'm Judith Steen. The US military recently created an African command. Does that make you comfortable because it may increase accountability, or does that make you uncomfortable because it may be a new form of colonialism? It did what? The U.S. military has recently created an African command so that we will have our military thinking about and making plans for Africa. Oh, it's been a secret to you, has it? <laughs> well, it may be a secret to me, but what I would say is, is there a place where the American government does not have a command? <laughs> Uh, we have a question to your left, up in the front here. Dr. Matai, let me just say, I'm a woman from Kenya, and I'm just so proud of you. You have been so, just such an inspiration to all of us here. And I just wanted to tell you, I go to Kenya often, and as I drive from Nairobi to Embu, where I'm from, and I see all those trees, I think about you. So thank you so much. Thank so you. So I thank have a question. You. My question is this. Uh, there are many of us, uh, there's a large Kenyan community in the U.S. right now, and many of us go back and get very frustrated as we, we see the problems and uh, we are trying to help in our own little way. So I wanted to, uh, to find out from you, what would be your recommendation for the people who are here, how we can help back there? Well, I know that uh, the, the, the people, the diaspora, as we call you from home, the diaspora has been a, a great source of income for the Kenya government. So if the Kenya government would use a lot of the money that you people said back home, if they would not waste it or steal it, <laughs> uh, it would be a great contribution. And I don't think people should feel like they have to come home because um, sometimes people ask me, what do you think about people who come here, they study, they stay? Well, you can't say that people must always go back because people pursue opportunities. 
And, um, and to a very large extent, part of the reason why people don't come back is as long as the environment is not conducive, as, as long as, uh, uh, yeah, as long as the environment is not conducive, people do feel like, why should I go there and struggle when there is an opportunity here that I can pursue? Um, I think it, the governments have a responsibility to create a conducive environment so that their citizens, if they go away, they come back with the skills and the knowledge that they have uh, gained uh, and that they don't prefer to stay out because they, 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 at home things are more difficult than they are abroad. Recently we traveled to, uh, uh, I think it was Singapore. We went to Singapore. And Singapore is a very small, as you know, it's a very small country, but it's a very, very rich country. And one of the th things that I, uh, that I learned about Singapore is that citizens compete to work for the government. That if you get a government job, you celebrate because you have a job for life, you are very well paid, very well paid. You are, yes, you are very well protected. So people don't want to work for corporations. They want to work for the government of Singapore. And I, I thought, that's wonderful. If you go to Kenya, <laughs> <laughs> everybody wants to work for everybody else except the government. <laughs> and if you are working for the government and you find a job in the, corp in the private sector, you are very happy to get out. In fact, people are always trying to get out of the government to go to the private sector. Now, what is it that makes Singapore value its citizens and create an environment that makes them want to come? And in fact, even foreigners want to go. In fact, I was told there are a lot of foreigners who go to work in Singapore because the environment is so conducive. There is no very little crime, no drugs. Um, there is very clean, uh, you know, almost everything that you and I want, because all of us want a good environment in which to raise our children and, and live. And I think when I compare those two countries, and you know Singapore was a, was a colony, one of the British colonies, uh, you see that um, it is possible. If the African governments would create a very conducive environment, a lot of people in the diaspora would come back, and a lot of people at home would not be trying very, very hard to go out, and especially people in the health sector. There is a great demand in developed countries for health workers because God has blessed you with long life, and so many of you are needing a lot of care much, much longer than, um, than, than, than people in the developing countries. And because of that, you, are, you have a very high demand for health workers. So we are losing our doctors, we are losing our nurses to the developed world. Now, if we were doing like the Singapore, people wouldn't be coming because people want to be home. I'm sure even these kids you see here, one of these days they will park and they will say, I'm going home, there's no place like home. Sooner or later you want to go home, but it is, it is the responsibility of the government to create the conducive environment so that citizens want to stay, want to work, 
at home. And if they go, it is a good thing. And it is very wonderful that, for example, you have the Peace Corps program. I think the Peace Corps program is a wonderful program. It gives young people from America to go abroad to see what the rest of the world is like, to even appreciate what the role of America out there is, so that if they come back and one day end up in the government, uh, or end up in the White House, they might be a little more sympathetic with, with the people out there. And when they come back here, they may even be a little more grateful about America. <laughs> mm. Great, so we have uh, another question here towards the right. Hi, Dorothy Walters. Um, at the beginning of your speech, you mentioned that at the time that you grew up when you were a little girl, uh, resources were plentiful. Uh, that you didn't have to worry about water, fire, wood, or fuel. Um, but your country does not have a homogenous landscape. The, um, the far north is a very dry area, always has been. Um, did you find that as you were um, trying to promote your ideas and you traveled around your own country at the very beginning, that uh, northerners may have had more experience in how to conserve scarce water or scarce fuel? And were any of them able to contribute any ideas in conserving scarce resources uh, to your program? I'm not sure that I have understood that question. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe I can clarify. Just like the United States is not similar, um, uh, um, Oregon may get a lot of rain and Arizona doesn't. Uh, your country also has areas that are not similar to one another. And you have many tribes that grew up living in dry areas, unlike you, uh, when, they when they were little girls and Ma said, go out and gather firewood. They were having a hard time gathering firewood all along. So I'm wondering if their knowledge of management of scarce resources um, was passed on or if it was beneficial to you in your travels around the country, uh, in your own country, as you were beginning your movement and looking for ways to conserve resources? Yeah, well, I, I would say that um, if I understand that question, that I'm still feeling like I'm not fully, <laughs> fully aware of what the lady is asking me. I, I think what she's trying to to ask is, is there, is there something that we can learn or that you have learned from communities that have been dealing with degraded environments? From, up, from outside Kenya. Well, or within Kenya, but in more uh, challenging environments, yeah. physical environments, that we can learn. So as climate change accelerates and, and desertification accelerates, do we have lessons we can draw from places that have been dealing with drought for a long time? Well, well one of the things that, uh, that we learned, we have learned in the course of our uh, work is, for example, the fact that when, when we, during the colonial era, we introduced a lot of species that don't belong to Kenya, such as the eucalyptus from Australia, the pines from the Northern Hemisphere, and we clear-cut a lot of our indigenous forests and replaced them with these trees because we, be, we believed that these trees are economically more valuable. And what we have now found out is that these trees kill local biodiversity. And they reduce the capacity of our forest 
to give us the services that they normally give, like rain, like water. Uh, and of course, we, we, we do, as we work, we do exchange uh, experiences. One of the, what the, of the activities of the Green Belt Movement is to change, to exchange experiences. And there are lots of people in Kenya who are involved in development. Most governments uh, are there and they are involved in development. I know, for example, the government of uh, 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 Sweden for a very long time was involved in working with the communities who live in drier areas to do terracing in order to, uh, to ensure that soil is not lost and water is retained when it rains. Uh, right now, uh, I can say that we are in a consultation with, uh, with the Bill Gates. Bill Gates, as you know, uh, Bill Gates Foundation is very much involved in trying to help organizations exchange information and, and learn from each other. And right now we are working with them to harvest rainwater, especially in the drier areas of the country, because we, we do get rains, but quite often that rain, the water comes and flashes off and disappears into the lakes and, and uh, ocean. And so we are working with, um, we are discussing, we haven't received the money, we are hoping that Bill Gates will be able to support us to introduce a very huge campaign for harvesting rainwater. Because rainwater is a gift from God. But when it comes, so, of, so often we don't, we always tell people that you receive rainwater like this. <laughs> you need to do this. So that all the water that comes, you retain it. And we say that rain is a blessing. But you are only blessed with the, the drops that fall on your land. What falls on somebody else's land is, is not yours. So you need to save what is on your land. So these are some of the experiences that, um, that I would say we share. The, United, the USID, as you know, is very much involved in development. And we are working closely with USID in Kenya to conserve forests. And this is especially with respect to carbon, especially the red issues, to make sure that forests are protected. In fact, forest is our big thing right now. I'm the Goodwill Ambassador for the Congo Forest. And the main thing is to uh, encourage government to ensure that forests become part of the negotiations in Copenhagen in December. And USID is helping us do some very local initiatives to protect forests. A question to your left. This will be the last question of the night. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, and I know many of you still have questions. However, we do invite you to join us at our reception where we are selling copies of Dr. Mathai's book, uh, The Challenge for Africa, and they are all signed by Dr. Mathai. So uh, please join us. She will join us briefly as well. Thank you. Uh, <coughs> good evening, Dr. Mathai. Mike Smith. Thank you very much. Um, my question deals with um, if you could elaborate more on how self-sufficiency um, will play a role in Africa's independence, or do you believe that uh, we're in such an interdependent world that self-sufficiency won't matter anymore? Yeah, I hope it doesn't come out in the book that I'm saying that Africa doesn't need the rest of the world. 
because that would be wrong. Africa needs the rest of the world. The dependency that I, I, I am referring to is the dependency where you stop working for yourself and you wait for other people to work for you. Uh, that's the dependency that can be killing and that can be disempowering. Uh, interdependence is a part of life today and you cannot run away from it. That is the reason why I, I do not, uh, I argue for the cancellation of the debt, but I don't argue for no borrowing and no aid because I think that what is important is that what we borrow or what we receive is used for the purpose for, the, for which we receive it or we borrow it and we truly help our people to get out of the state of, state of poverty. But we definitely need each other. If we didn't, you know, as you know, in Kenya, we don't drink coffee, but we produce the best coffee in the world. <laughs> so we need market. <laughs> we need to sell it. We are independent. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please meet Thank us you. out in the reception area. We will step out shortly. Thank you. Thank you.